Life is short, too short for many of us. Welcome to It's About Time, helping you make the most of life in the days you have. I'm your host, Katherine Hammond, and my experience as an estate attorney, working with clients professionally, while also living a very real, sometimes painful life has taught me a lot. You don't have to do the tricky parts of life alone. Here in this space, we navigate them together. This podcast helps you live as fully, bravely, and beautifully as possible in the ups and downs of your real life. This is a place to make the most of life when you don't have forever. And let's face it, none of us has forever. Welcome. Let's dive in. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Mandy Leto. She is one of the smartest, no, one of the most brilliant people that I know. And she's also one of the most down to earth. Most people are shocked to find out how much we have in common in terms of questioning ourselves and feeling like we have to earn our way through life. So many of us hit burnout trying to earn our way to that ever elusive enoughness. Whether you're an overachiever or just someone who has struggled to believe that you're enough, I know you're going to love this one. Mandy, it is amazing to be here with you uh, via Zoom, via the podcast. And one of the things that's so funny to me about our conversation today, you have a podcast called Enough. You work with super high achievers, uber successful people who are sometimes perfectionists, Uh, sometimes still don't feel like they are quite enough. And I want to share with our listeners that this morning, our conversation is coming about in a way that brings up all of this for me and that voice in my brain that can tell me still sometimes, you know, many years into my adulthood, many years into my professional success, that I'm not quite enough because I didn't have, I, I've been traveling and my uh, my computer is on a variety of different time zones and I didn't have the right time for our conversation today. And I like to be uber prepared. And so I realized at the last moment that we were meeting an hour earlier than I had thought. And so my brain as I have to delay our conversation by 15 minutes. And as I don't have time to quote unquote, prepare in the way that I normally do, my brain starts telling me about all, all the ways I'm not enough. Please tell me I'm not alone. (laughs) I think we are professional keepers of all the evidence of the ways in which we've messed up and that evidence can you know pop up at times like this when we don't feel prepared when we feel like we can only be successful if we've been uber prepared and gone Mm -hmm. through the notes instead of trusting your in the moment intelligence so i find that success needs to look and feel a certain way. And there can be a real rigidity around that. So bravo for calling it out. And here's to 
being open to the possibility that not having read through your notes copiously and taken no more notes and had a pre-prepared arc for where this is going to go could lend itself to this being spontaneous and fun and playful mm. and even better than it may have been originally. Right. There, there's something I was reading a book recently and thinking about our intuition. It's called the the corporate mystic is the book that I was reading. And I was thinking about how, how important our intuition is to really bring all of our wisdom and divine wisdom to our professional lives, to our personal lives. How does that story of not enoughness, that story of I have to be perfect, I have to get it all right in my eyes and everybody else's eyes. How does that get in the way of our intuition? I think a lot of the behaviors that are related to not enoughness are defense mechanisms that have developed as coping strategies and are kind of cool when you think about it, that when we grew up, we figured out that if we could strive to be the best, if we could please and delight others by pushing down our own needs, all of these things that we figured out at a young age when we didn't have much agency. It's kind of amazing that our child minds figured that out. So I want to honor that part of ourselves that created these defense mechanisms and they're intended to be protective. I've just touched on two, but it could be, you know, procrastination. In other words, you know, you don't, you, you put something off. It could be people pleasing. It could be perfectionism. It could be, you know, putting oneself down, self-deprecating humor. There could be all these variations of defense mechanisms that are intended to protect us. So the intent is good. However, often now being adults who actually do have agency, I think this is one of the core things to explore and maybe perhaps in this conversation, is when we have agency, it doesn't mean that we stop using those old defunct defense mechanisms that were developed when we didn't have agency. And because those neural pathways have become so established in our minds, like those grooves are six lane highways in our minds now. And if we've learned at a young age, not to trust our intuition, not to develop a relationship with the wisdom that's trying to bubble up from our, you know, from our innermost knowing, because those were taken away from us as kids, you do what you're told, right? You be quiet, you, you, Stop, stop crying, all you know, whatever those things are. It's it can be very challenging for a lot of people whose defense mechanisms are firmly in place and engrooved in those six-lane highways to actually have any kind of connection to what they want, what feels pleasurable, mm. what brings them joy, what their inner wisdom is trying to tell them. Because the very purpose of those defense mechanisms has been to remove that agency and to farm out our feel good. And, you know, what I what what should I think success looks like? What job should I have? What, 
You know, what should feel good in bed? What should I be doing with my life? All of those things, it's not necessarily coming for a pl- from a place of being connected to oneself. And so I think those defense mechanisms can be blocked. It's kind of like the Wi-Fi signal of the intuition has like a big cement wall blocking it off from autopiloting from those defense mechanisms. Again, the, the basis of them is good, but there comes a time where they're no longer helping us. They're actually hindering us. And that can be such a cluster suck when all of a sudden these strategies that have felt useful, helpful, made us successful, they stop working. And the instinct, if there is some instinct, is to double down and do more people-pleasing, more perfectionism, more overextending oneself. And when that doesn't work, it can be a bit like throwing your hands in the air and saying, WTF, like, what am I actually, what do I do now? So this is actually a place where a lot of people start to go into that inner exploration of what brings me joy? What do I actually want? How do I like my eggs? Where do I want to go on holiday? What job would Mm. feel good to me? So it's re-familiarizing yourself or maybe familiarizing yourself even for the first time with intuition and instinct and self-trust. You you talked, Dr. Mandy, about those neural pathways, those highways that our brain has created and how, how we've done that from a protective place as children. Is there any hope for getting off of the super highway? Well, I'm talking to the queen of hope, so I should sure as heck <laughs> hope so, right? Yes, but when you think about it, If you have a multi-lane neural highway and then you're taking out your little machete and you're starting to hack a new way through the wilderness, it's so easy to lose consistency. It's so easy to think, oh, it's so hard, but staying in those grooves is also hard. So it's choose your hard and it's going to take some time. It will take some effort. When those six lane highways are in place, it's very difficult to be there with your, you know, I'm going to change my mindset and all the ambition that you have in the world. And there you are hacking out new neural pathways with your proverbial machete. It's hard. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes consistency. And we also live in a society of instant gratification. So we think, oh, if if this doesn't happen within four or five days, I'm giving up even if it's not that conscious. But I think there's something to understanding that it is possible. There's always hope. It takes time. It takes consistency. And it takes a little bit of a sense of humor as well because those grooves are deep and they may start to grow over eventually and you know grass over. But this is a long game and that can be very tricky for this instant gratification, this very dopaminergic society that we live in that wants 24-7 gratification. So yes, there is hope. And the bad news is it takes time and consistency, patience, and probably a little levity. I I love the inclusion of levity in that recipe. And I want to hear more about some of the recipe And before we do that, I want to go back a little bit because our listeners can already tell 
that you bring a lot of wisdom, a lot of intelligence to this conversation. Um, and you haven't just come to this because it's an area that you were intellectually interested in. And so you did a bunch of research. How, how, how did you come into working with uber achievers around the topic of enoughness? I kind of fell into it. I realized some of these thought patterns from myself, some of these belief systems. And in spite of having achieved some pretty epic things in my life, like going from growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in rural Canada and being the first woman in my family ever to go to university and do my PhD at Cambridge and then going into investment banking, which was a hairpin turn from what I studied to what I ended up doing and then starting my own coaching business. And so there's been a lot of success and it still never felt enough. There were always those gremlins telling me, you know, it manifested as imposter syndrome, for example, like somebody's going to find you out or this, this feeling of like, when, when I get that diploma or when I get that bonus or when I get that next promotion, then for absolutely sure, then I will feel enough and it will fill this dark pit of despair that is inside of me that the rest of the world doesn't see because the surface looks so glossy and shiny and accomplished. But the thing that sucks about living in this kind of a situation is you look forward to the freedom and the deep exhale that will come once this seemingly impossible goal is achieved and then it happens and it just feels like a damp squib just like wah, wah. it's not a it always feels disappointing and yet that doesn't stop the mind from engaging with the next seductive slinky shiny object of desire whether it's a material object or a status marker or whatever it might be and you think after decades you'd get the memo that it's not going to shift, but there's this, it's almost like a little brainwashing in between. It's like, oh, for sure it's going to be this next thing. No, it wasn't that thing. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's this hall of mirrors. So I started to see that this was a pattern that I shared that was also with these super high achievers that seemed very intimidating and had all of their ducks in a row and we're, we're knocking it out of the park, but their secret, which they'd often confess well into the coaching, because it's not something that you want to even acknowledge to yourself, is it feels meh. Or when the thing happens, I'm already dreaming about the next thing. So this got me really interested in the value of mindset as really the ultimate asset in success if you think about it that way that you know you think it's your your title or whatever your status or how much money or how even how much impact you're making but really it's about being able to understand how your mind works and what a wily 
capricious creature it is and how it can it can take us on so many wild goose chases so i think this is what really got me interested in understanding what is actually going on in our minds and how to start to use that to find peace because in that pursuit of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing it's living in this state of chronic wanting and that looks to the outside world like ambition which it is and it can be lauded it can be applauded so you feel remember if you don't have a lot of intuition and self-trust because you've grown up with a lot of defense mechanisms this must be what success feels like so it's so easy to get caught in this pattern And it is a loop of achieving something and then not feeling satisfied and needing the next thing. So I started to realize after coaching for 15 plus years that it wasn't actually about the achieving for myself or for the people who I coach. There was a habitualization of wanting. So it wasn't actually about achieving the thing. Yeah, that was a nice bonus, but it was almost like an addiction to needing more without being able to identify what more was. And it's actually quite irrelevant, but it's being on this wheel. It's being on this loop where there's never any extended peace. Because as soon as you've achieved one thing, you might be able to breathe for 30 seconds or 30 minutes or three days or a week, but then there's the need to begin the cycle again and again and again. And I've seen people who are at the end of their careers, which look incredibly shiny from the outside, but still they feel like a failure and they feel like they haven't achieved their full potential because they've never been able to articulate what the end result was that would ultimately make them fill that seemingly unfillable hole inside. That wanting. The wanting. Mm. We all have the wanting and we all put it on different things in life and I have had some of that shiny object syndrome myself. And so it's interesting knowing the kind of people with whom you work, that it's it's universal no matter how much people have achieved. Until you address the wanting, all of the success in the world will never make you feel like you are enough, like you have enough. Yeah. It's, as I said, it's a hall of mirrors. You keep going and going and going. It's insatiable. And even knowing that on an intellectual level doesn't necessarily stop somebody from continuing to be in that loop because it's this it all comes back to how this this idea of instant gratification and needing that dopamine hit of the next thing. And then that actually, the more you achieve, the higher the bar needs to be to satisfy that. Because 
I was speaking to Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford University, who has written a book on dopamine and how the base tonic set level of our dopamine shifts every time we achieve. So it takes more just to feel normal the next time. So when you achieve a big thing, it's not just achieving more of the same kind of thing. You have to achieve a bigger thing and an ever bigger thing. So it's it's a recipe for exhaustion. It's a recipe for never really feeling at peace. And it's a loop that is really challenging to get out of. Mm. It, it's interesting because I was listening to one of your recent podcasts. And by the way, listeners, if you haven't heard Mandy Leto's podcast, you need to go listen. It's the, uh, one of the most well done podcasts I've ever experienced uh, between the stories and the heart and the wisdom, it's uh, really stunning. So I was listening to a recent podcast and you were talking about some of the scams that we run. And one that really struck me related to having to continually earn our worth. And that's the thread that was touched, the super highway in my brain that was touched this morning when I realized, oh, shoot, I'm going to be late for my podcast interview with Mandy. And uh, suddenly, like my my house of cards on that old highway feels like it's starting to cave in because, and this is what I found probably in my 40s, I realized that for much of my life, I had been striving so hard to do everything perfectly because I was afraid if there was a ball that I dropped, a time that I was late, people would see it would be like a crack in my persona, a crack into the inside of me, and people would discover that I'm not really perfectly shiny and glossy and all put together that inside they see through this crack. There's there's a lot of mess and chaos and not enoughness. And I I touched on that a little bit this morning. And it's interesting to discover that as much as I know and as much as I have come into my own uh being and enoughness from somewhere other than all that I do. That highway is still there. That voice is still there in my brain. Yeah. And I suspect that it always will be. So even if those six lane highways start to grass over, the grooves will still be there. You know, even if you think about, I was just in Italy and, you know, you start to see some of those, the places where they ran track in the Roman days, like there's still grooves in the earth. They've all grassed over, but the grooves are still there. And it made, it just reminded me of our brains of having that image in our minds that the track is always there, but we become better at spotting ourselves going into the stories. And this is one of the things that I've discovered, because I think about this way too much, probably, but there's these elaborate stories that form 
around these defense mechanisms or when a situation happens, you're late for the call, the natural reaction is immediately to go into some kind of a story around how you suck and how you're not adequate. And there's no compassion there, at least in the initial knee-jerk story. That story is usually very, very critical, very judgmental. It's catastrophizing. I think that's something I really would invite listeners to notice is how much stories elaborately crafted, like Hollywood grade stories exist in our minds of things that we're projecting or filling in the blanks of, you know, we can't possibly know that that's true, but there's this certainty to those stories that this, they're so compelling that they're very easy to see as substitutes for truth. And they actually feel like truth. And I think this is one of the ways that we get sucked into potentially living lives that are more brittle, smaller, less juicy, less joyful than they could be. Because those stories are so compelling and we see them as caps lock truth. But they actually, some of the time, a lot of the time, cause us suffering. They cause us to be constantly unsatisfied. They cause us to be such jerks to ourselves. So there's something about being able to realize how you went into storytelling about that situation, what the impact, what the ramifications of that would be what people would decide, what I would decide about you. And actually from my side, none of that is true. I'm lovingly pushing back on that because actually to be imperfect, to have a crack in the facade, that's the thing about these stories is they create barriers to human connection because mm. it's a it's a hologram. It's a projection of who we are because we can't possibly be perfect. We can't possibly please everybody all of the time or whatever other defense mechanisms might be. So therefore we have this, um, where did I read this? I think it was in an Anne Lamott book. It was so beautifully articulated about how we send this representative of ourselves out into the world who looks put together, who has there's no chaos. There's no dumpster fires. Everything is under control, has eaten the perfect amount of fiber, drank the perfect amount of water. Bed is made with hospital corners. You know, there's there's no dry skin on their heels. Like there's no weeping bags of salad in their fridge. Everything is just so. And this representative that we send out into the world isn't a real person. We can't relate to that representative. Because the rest of us have weeping bags of salad and dry heels and at least some of the time, or our own variation of dumpster fires, large and small. So it's so interesting that we're trying to put an image or a persona of ourselves out in the world that actually is not someone that connects with other human beings. Which is what we most want in life. We, we long for real connection. And so when we send out that facade, when we hold up that facade, and when we require other people to uh, 
jump through all of the hoops and hold them to unreasonably high standards. None of us can really connect with other human beings. Yeah. So our representatives are just meeting. It's kind of like, well, my people will talk to your people. It's kind of like that, but different. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm thinking about being, you know, obviously a, a businesswoman, being a mother, but uh, being a businessman, being a father, being a friend, what is at stake if we don't deal with our own requirements to hold out this facade? What's at stake if we just keep playing the facade game? There's nothing bad or wrong with sending your representative out into the world. My question is, is it causing you suffering? Because sometimes maybe that's exactly the right thing to do. If you're dealing with somebody who might be a bit of a snake in the grass or you're feeling particularly tender, there's nothing bad or wrong with that when we're not hurting ourselves or other people or we're not breaking the law in any way. But if we're causing ourselves pain by not being authentic, for example, or because our self-talk is so vitriolic and so abusive that we're not really living. Uh, this phrase is not my favorite, but I can't think of a better one, like the best version of ourselves. Or if we're creating anxiety and heart palpitations and stress, rehashing a conversation that happened six months ago, and that other person in question is not thinking about it, not thinking about you, they've moved on. That's what I mean by, and we're still causing ourselves suffering about it. That's what I mean by causing ourselves pain. So is the fact that you're sending your representative out into the world or that you're not in touch with your emotions or that you're not, you haven't processed your pain or you don't have a way of sitting with pain or discomfort. Is that causing you suffering? I would begin there. Mm. The, the first thing you said there, there's, there's nothing wrong with sending out your representatives is such a beautiful starting place because it's so easy to make ourselves wrong when this is our that that child who legitimately needed to perform in certain ways in order to navigate the world doing their very best who taught us to do this and there's a big difference between chastising and punishing that part of ourselves that's still on the super highway and giving them a giant hug and saying, I love you. I totally get you. You're doing a great job. And is this really serving us? Yeah. Yes. Mm. What about burnout? How does burnout come in? I see it as 
a way we inflict suffering on ourselves, right? That because if I believe the stories that I must suppress my own needs, if I believe the story that it's not safe for me to rest, if I believe the story that it's not safe for me to ask for my needs to be considered and to put boundaries in place, because I think something will, something bad will happen, something will be taken away. Because the thing is, don't forget wanting. Wanting is not only pursuing the thing that we think will give us peace, freedom, love, all the things. It's also that we're simultaneous. Now, we're not only running towards something, but we're also running from something, pursuing us from behind, which is, to use Arthur Brooks's phrase, the agony of irrelevance. So we're, we're moving down this house of mirrors, this mirage is shimmering on the horizon, mixing metaphors here, but you see what I'm like, we're running towards something, thinking it will give us relief. And then behind us is a series of, of bogeymen's running out, like, if you don't do this, you're not going to be enough. You're going to fall behind. You're going to be the disappointment that your parents always thought you were. Who's going to want you? Whatever those recurring thoughts are. So that could be something to start to play with is what are the recurring thoughts that I have? And that might tell you either about what's the mirage on the horizon that you think will give you relief or what's behind you that you're running from that you think is going to consume you and swallow you whole if you don't keep moving. So that in itself, I don't know about you when I explain that, that feels absolutely exhausting even just to listen to that. Absolutely. And I identifying who is that boogeyman that we're running from because every single time in my life, I have felt like I was running from a boogeyman and I tumbled and fell and the boogeyman had a chance to catch up to me. I discovered that the boogeyman was not nearly as scary or horrible. The, the, uh, the catastrophic thinking that where I thought I would, you know, anywhere from be ostracized to literally die if XYZ happened has never actually happened. Curious, right? Which leads me (laughs) to another story that we have running, which is somehow, and I don't know if you identify this, I'm only purely talking for myself here, but there's a story that I constantly have to feel bad about myself or something else that I'm not allowed, I haven't, I don't deserve to feel too good. So if one problem disappears, it pops like a soap bubble, or I win at something or achieve something, another thing will mushroom up in its place because there's this perpetual story. And again, that's why it's interesting to get curious about your perpetual thoughts. Uh, Like one for me is I always have to feel bad about something. Because it kind of keeps you humble, right? It stops you thinking about the things you heard in your home growing up. It stops you getting too big for your boots. So again, the brain has this amazing system of creating this, this this whole way of showing up with all these checks and balances. Don't feel too good or wait for the other shoe to drop if things are good. 
don't feel too relaxed about it because something bad is sure, sure to happen sooner or later. So starting to pay attention to, again, that's another series of stories that is playing out. And that might be one of the things that's behind you in the rear view mirror. It's like something bad, keep moving or else something bad will happen. Deplete yourself, scoop yourself out, keep achieving that somehow like being Pac-Man in a video game, more and more things that you can gobble up will somehow eventually lead you to one big one that makes the music go and you win like extra lives or something. And that it ain't necessarily so. And in the pursuit of those Pac-Man dots, we often are completely out of touch with our physical reality. How's our body doing from the neck down? Mm. Because part of the agreement to be able to run at pace like this, part of the transaction is we shall ignore all signals from the neck down and numb them out because they're inconvenient and they'll slow us down. And therefore the bogeyman is likely to catch us and eat us whole. Again, you know, that's not necessarily the case, but we believe our stories. Remember they're Hollywood grade. They're so compelling. Mm. That reminded me of Brawny Ware's five, top five regrets of the dying. And one of them is I regret that I never let myself truly be happy. We keep thinking that we will be happy when, and it is almost an addiction to look at what's wrong, to look at what's wrong with us, with our lives, and to keep running after something else. And this podcast is about, we don't, we don't get forever. There comes a time when we have to say, is this how I want to live the rest of my life? And so in that context, Mandy, I'm curious how you would finish the sentence for our listeners who are resonating with what you're talking about. If you were to finish the sentence, it's about time you. How would you finish that? Well, I'm going to, since we can only ever really comment on ourselves in any meaningful way, it's about time I got more intentional about getting under the skin of my stories, mm. seeing them for what they are, because wherever I thought I was going, you know, to the fictional there or more. There's no there there. It's a mirage. And how much money is enough? I don't know, more. How many accolades are enough? I don't know, more. Like the, the abstractness. So the ability to get underneath the skin of those stories and to have built the emotional capacity to sit with discomfort also allows us to sit with joy and peace mm -hmm. and a and a i think this word is overused but an awesome 
you know, to be in the awe that we are finite, you know, like being in the supermarket and you look at the, the best before date on a, on a tub of something, a tub of artichokes or, you know, container of milk, there's a best before date and we have one. We just don't see what it is. And really being in the awareness of that, when you're on that loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop of that that highway that's going at, you know, those Hot Wheels sets? I don't know if you, anybody in your family ever had those multi-lane highways, but they always go in a loop. That's That Hot Wheels set is kind of where that achiever or that story is and being able to understand that that's all it's ever going to be. You can drive a nicer car on the Hot Wheels track. You can go faster. You might even go do some cool jumps, but it's only ever going to be that Hot Wheels track. And getting under the skin of the story. It's it's about time I got underneath the skin of that story. And that is a practice that I'm a deep stand for. I'm a deep commitment to seeing when I go into story. And I call my clients on it as well. Getting underneath that story and finding practices to start to cultivate peace and joy and getting off that track. And you talked earlier in our conversation about it takes some work to get off of those neural pathways, the superhighways in our minds. And you said it takes time, it takes patience, it takes consistency. Doing what exactly? How, how do we get off the superhighway? Do you have a quick recipe that I can just follow and be fixed forever, Mandy? Well, I can tell it to you quickly, but it's a long <laughs> game. So the first thing I've already mentioned is recognizing the stories, recognizing how elaborate they are, recognizing how compelling they are, recognizing how they're masquerading as truth. Because this is what is causing us to not feel at peace. To This is the, the cause of so much of our suffering, right? And to be able to, this is, I'm, I'm a massive fan of meditation. I've meditated for coming on 15 years now. Um, not always daily, like keeping it real, but I have a very, very regular meditation practice. And a lot of the time it's boring. A lot of the time I'm waiting for some kind of Nirvana-esque experience to happen that st I'm still waiting, by the way. But what it's done is it's helped me to create a distance from my stories, a distance between me as being able to witness all of the noise all of the distraction that is so tempting because distraction is also a way of numbing out and not feeling our feelings and not cultivating our intuition, not getting to know ourselves. So being the noticer of your thoughts. And as I said, a lot of times meditate, you can't get meditation wrong. I've had a lot of clients who say, Oh, I'm not good at meditation. I tried. And I'm, that's not the point having some kind of a stillness practice 
And I know you've probably heard this a hundred times before, and you might be doing the eye roll and all the things, but this is one of the ways that I found to get under the skin of a story. Because a story are lots of thoughts cobbled together, reinforced patterns of going around and around that Hot Wheels set, right? And we become almost addicted to our own stories. Like we become addicted to the wanting. We habitualize the wanting. We habitualize feeling bad about ourselves. We habitualize, oh, the other shoe is going to drop. We habitualize making ourselves smaller, lest somebody spot that we have a representative out in the world. So it's understanding that these things are at play. And that takes a bit of a taking a step back and going, wow, actually, I do have a series of stories that I'm running. And how do I, you can't, you can't get at the story through the level of more story. So this is why the practice of meditation is so helpful that one thing I've learned, and it's taken time, is I've learned to be the witnesser of my thoughts. Like, oh, here's me having thoughts about needing to work harder, or here, here's me having thoughts that I will become irrelevant or that nobody cares about what I have to say. I'm having a mm -hmm. thought. So that immediately takes you under the skin of the grape of that story. Or if you want to think about it like a creme brulee, the story is that tough, sometimes sweet exterior, but it's getting underneath that and then sitting with whatever is under there. And that can feel that for me always felt like that's what the black hole is that I'm trying to stuff with achievements because I don't want to feel it. I'm afraid if I, if I fall in there, I will never get out of it. And that has never been my experience. Like with you stumbling and the bogeyman not actually, you know, consuming you and spitting out the bones. If we can actually get under the story and just sit with it, like, oh, another story I run, by the way, is it's never going to happen for me. Mm. I work super hard and, you know, but it's never really going to happen. I'll deplete myself and I'll try my best, but yeah, you know, sucking wind through the teeth, it's, it's never really going to happen for me. So that story is constantly running. And if I'm not aware of that story, the behaviors, the way I show up in the world is informed by that story. Whereas if I'm like, oh, there's me having my favorite old flavor of story. It's never going to happen for me again. I can get under the story and actually, what is the feeling? Where do I feel that feeling of that story in my body? Well, I feel it in the pit of my stomach and it feels heavy and it feels wet and it feels cold and it feels a bit hopeless. And if I can locate it in my body and I can name it, name it to tame it, right? There's a famous neuroscientist who talks about naming it to tame it. I think it's Dan Siegel. If I can locate it in my body and I can name it, then the next step is giving that so much compassion. It's like, of course you feel like that. 
It's okay to feel like that. It's not wrong to feel like that. It's kind of like a little milk and cookies moment with you in that story, in the pit of your stomach where it's wet and cold and dark and heavy. And then something happens to that feeling. Once you've recognized it's a story, once you've located it, once you've named it, once you've not made it wrong and haven't tried to like scurry it along, once it's allowed to be there and you can love on it as if it was like a disgruntled friend that's having a really bad day, you can put your arm around it even and just be with it. It shifts. But when you're coming at it from the level of story, there's always more evidence for why it's never going to happen or for why I'm not allowed to feel good for extended period or why I don't deserve it to happen. That single little tool of distancing myself from my thoughts and my stories, the ability to say, to to see and acknowledge that I am having the thought that, and even in conversation with somebody else, being able to say, I, I have the story that, that single tool, that little bit of distance is the one thing that has given me the most freedom from my mind. And what I hear you talking about is integrating, bringing my body back into the picture so that I don't just have to go with all of the um, tracks and crazy, crazy thoughts and turns that my mind might take, but bringing it all back together, the, the wisdom of my body, the warmth of my body, the heart that's in my body, and bringing myself, remembering myself. Yeah. And I think those those steps of not making it wrong, not pushing it away, not numbing it out with chron- chronic frenzy doing or distorting its needs or whatever else that we might do to try to numb those, those sensations out. It's, it is a remembering. It is a connection and we'll forget all the time because remember those six lane grooves on the hot wheels set are, are well-established. And the whole point is, again, not to beat yourself up like, oh, I suck. Look at me. I can't what I can't even do this. It's the kindness part of it, giving ourselves kindness as we go through this process. And as much compassion as we would if we were, if we were talking to a child or if we were talking, you know, talking to your granddaughter or, you know, a dear friend. We wouldn't, we would never talk to them the way that we talk to ourselves. And we've normalized that, we've habitualized that. So somehow it's okay because we do it all the time. Mm. And if we start to, with our machete, 
hack our way through a new way of being and realizing like, oh, here's me having a story. You locate it, you name it, and you love on that thing, right? Like, as I said, you come with milk and squidgy chocolate chip cookies and, and a big fuzzy blanket and you sit there and say, hey, let's put the fire on. It's okay. And all of a sudden it shifts and it's not even doing it for the purpose of it shifting. Because that can then become like a hack, which isn't the point. And I think the, tr the toughest part of that, there's two parts that for me have been the toughest, is to first of all, get out of the story. Because we're all walking around with those Google reality glasses on where those stories feel like truth. They feel like how the world is and how we're in the world. So it's understanding that our stories are simply a way of us relating to the world. And it's not necessarily true. In fact, it's probably not true. And getting under the skin of that and finding a way to relate to what is happening differently, that's the most potent, peaceful way that I have found to start to do this badly. And what I mean by badly is forgetting, um, still being quite nasty to myself, forgetting to do it for three weeks, getting back up again, that it's okay if it's a disjointed process. It's a North Star. I think about it that way. It's a direction to walk in. Mm. And so we just take one step and another and another and keep putting one foot in front of the other. That, yeah. that feels so light and free uh, that I, I don't have to do it all. And, and I want to say to our listeners, if this resonates with you, don't wait to pull the skin back on your stories. Don't wait to let yourself be happy because we don't have forever. And so start taking that first step now, whatever it would be. Mandy, I could have this conversation with you for days and days at a time. Uh, what... Is there any final bit of wisdom that you want to leave us with today? I would encourage you and me and all the listeners today to find more opportunities for playfulness. Playfulness is such a beautiful antidote to the catastrophizing and seriousness of so many of those stories in our Google glasses, right? And playfulness is such a fun way. Like even if you're sitting with that feeling that feels so yucky, the wet, cold, painful feeling, it's in the pit of your stomach and you've come with chocolate chip cookies, squidgy in the middle, and you come with tea or a glass of milk and you come with a big fuzzy blanket and you're like, well, I think I've been a little overbearing. You know, you can you can hold it lightly. Some things are too important to be taken too seriously. And I think life falls into that bucket, especially as we're coming into 
you know, the third third of our lives or where, you know, wherever listeners might be that you don't have to get burnt out or hit a brick wall or get divorced or get made redundant to start looking under the skin of your stories. As Catherine said, you can start now. Mm. Thank you so much. What a treat it has been to be with you. And I know that listeners who resonate with this will want more Mandy, more Dr. Mandy. Where can they find you? If you loved this conversation, I geek out on this kind of stuff. And I would encourage you to hop on over to my show as well. When you want to change up or in addition to Catherine's, it's called Enough, the podcast. And you can find it on Spotify and Apple podcast. I'm also on Instagram, which you can find me there at Mandy Leto. That's L-E-H-T-O. And I also talk about this kind of thing here. And it's been such a pleasure to play with you today. Catherine, thank you so much for having me. And we will put a link to your podcast and to your Instagram page. You drop so much wisdom there um, in our show notes so that listeners can um, continue to see more of what might bring them the freedom from those super highways and add some more playfulness into their lives. I love what you said. It's too important to take seriously. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you could take just a couple of minutes to write a review of this podcast, wherever you listen, that will help others find us here too. For more information and support for your real life, head to katherinehammond.life or follow me on Instagram. For estate planning in the state of Colorado, you'll find my estate planning and elder law firm, Hammond Law Group, at coloradoestateplan.com. Mm-hmm.